Hello and welcome to Monse, a K-pop podcast. I'm your host, Zia J, and I've got some exciting stuff for you this week. Of course, I'll be covering all the news as well as reviewing this week's new releases, but I've also got an interview with Dr. Thomas Bodinet, an academic whose research specifically looks at queer media in Asia and queer consumption of Asian media, including K-pop. That's the intellectual way of putting it. What it really means is that I got to ask him a bunch of questions about shipping and other things like that. I'm really excited about this episode, so please do head over to the socials Monse Podcast on Instagram and Twitter and let me know what you think about the things we talk about. But first, the news. Things have not been busy again this week, but here is the handful of news stories that I've got for you. BTS have been appointed special presidential envoys for future generations and culture, Blue House spokesperson Park Kyung-mi said this week. The appointment is part of the South Korean government's initiative to collaborate with civilian experts to expand the country's political horizons. South Korea has long used K-pop as an international form of soft power, extending their reach and improving their perception through the genre. I know language like this can be a bit alienating, so in other words, BTS's appointment as Special Presidential Envoy is part of a specific campaign, but also an ongoing effort by the South Korean government to improve their political standing by promoting K-pop artists internationally. In this position, BTS will be attending the United Nations General Assembly in New York in September, as well as various other events, to speak on global challenges including environmental issues and discrimination. AB6's agency, Brand New, has announced it will be taking legal action against people making libellous and defamatory posts online. In the statement, they said they will also continue to monitor posts about the artist and will continue to take legal action if necessary. This is the latest announcement from a label regarding inappropriate behaviour online, but several others have had to take legal action as well. SM Entertainment rookies Esper have signed with Creative Artists Agency, a major US entertainment label. SM will still be managing the group, but it's expected that Creative Artists Agency will handle their promotion and activity internationally. This is a continuation of SM's collaboration with CAA, as they have also worked with NCT 127 and Super M. And rumours have begun around where the Mnet Asian Music Awards will be held this year. There are reports that Mnet is considering Hong Kong for the awards show following their online show last year, but according to publication Il Gun Sports, industry sources are sceptical about the safety and practicality of that. Mama and Mnet have not confirmed anything, but it is a timely reminder that we're heading into the second part of this year, and award show discussions will be popping up more and more. That is all the news I have for you this week. As always, if there's ever a topic you want me to cover or stories you think I should keep an eye on, please do let me know on the socials at Monday Podcast on Instagram and Twitter. Now, let's get into this week's reviews. As with the news, there wasn't heaps of new releases this week, in no small part thanks to the already huge list of comebacks happening in August. But we'll kick things off with DPL Live's new track, Hula Hoops, featuring Mamamoo's Hwasa and Benzino. This is a super cool, chill R&B pop track that's just expertly made for summer. Like, this song is designed so well. (laughs) 
Super light instrumentals with a smooth synth line and really bright percussion samples mean all the focus is on the easy, lazy vocals. It's super easy to follow and that means it could end up being repetitive, but I think there's enough rhythm variation in the rap parts that you don't lose interest. Of course, Hwasa has this incredible bridge part that's all soft, breathy vocals and floating high notes. This song is really groovy, major poolside vibes. I don't always love DPLI's track, but this really hit for me. More R&B this week with Cold's new release When Dawn Comes Again featuring Baekhyun. This is pretty classic Korean chill hop, affected guitar and a fuzzy percussion line, complete with a sparkle sound effect as it heads into the chorus. I think Baekhyun was a great choice for this feature. He has that super smooth quality to his vocals and he so effortlessly slips into those higher parts. I do enjoy that this tends more towards live instrumentals with effects rather than electronic instrumentals. I think it gives it a little more cafe vibes than Late Night Bedroom, which is a fine line to walk with tracks like this. But it's really smooth, really easy listening. It'll probably end up on a bunch of study playlists, and I would not blame anyone for that. Duo Akamu have released their track Hey Kid, Close Your Eyes with Lee Sun-hee ahead of their album release next week. The 80s influences are really clear here, with light synths and electronic percussion, and all of the focus on these really quite emotional vocals. It's what Akmu is really known for, this super understated emotion, songs that will leave you a little heartbroken without really realising. There's some absolutely haunting vocals in the bridge, and a synth line in the last chorus that literally gave me chills. And all of that is very appropriate, because lyrically and visually this song is intense, with all of this imagery of children at war. I do really love it, but I'm not sure if it'll be on many of my playlists, just because I don't know if I can do that to myself emotionally. Those are the big releases this week. Coming up next week, we've got comebacks from Monster X and Dreamcatcher, as well as Dio's solo debut. We're also about to head into August, so if there's anyone you want me to keep an eye on this month, head over to Monse Podcast on Instagram and Twitter to let me know. Now on to the main part of this episode. In my Pride episode a few weeks ago, I did some research into academic work that looked at queerness and K-pop, and I found Dr. Thomas Bodinet's work. It was really interesting to me, both as a queer fan and as the host of this show, where I know a decent portion of my listeners are queer. So I reached out and he was kind enough to agree to talk to me about his research, and I really learned a lot. I do have to apologise briefly for mispronouncing his name in the Pride episode, though. A couple of things before we do get into it. I mentioned this in the Pride episode, but I do use queer instead of LGBTQ+. Queer, both as a term and a community, has been radically more accepting and transformative for those who may be excluded in other settings, and that's really important to me. If you don't identify with queer, that's totally valid, and I absolutely respect that. I am kind of personally using it as an umbrella term here. The other thing is, as you may have noticed, this is a long episode. Normally, I would split discussions like these into two parts. But this interview didn't really have a good way to do that, so I've kept it all together. The first part is a bit more of a clear kind of interview style discussion and pretty specific to K-pop. In the second part, we talk a bit more generally about why it's important to talk about these issues and what it means for us both in professional terms and as K-pop fans. 
if you're not interested in that, that's very much up to you and I will not be offended if you think it's too long or not quite as interesting. But I didn't want to cut it out, so it is all in there. Anyway, I will hand it over to myself and Dr. Thomas Bodinet. Okay, thank you very much for joining me. Do you want to just introduce yourself, maybe talk a bit about how K-pop first crossed your radar um, and then what a bit of your research is on? Oh, well, thank you, first of all, for inviting me to be here. It's it's quite a privilege for me to talk to you and participate in this fantastic project. So um, I am a lecturer in international studies at Macquarie University in Sydney and um, my journey with K-pop is both a personal one and an academic one. And my the questions that motivate my research about K-pop, which is looking at the intersections of LGBTQ fandom and K-pop in a variety of spaces around the globe, also speaks to me being a gay cisgendered male fan of K-pop who encountered it in Australia um, when I was in university, I was kind of, look, it's actually quite a superficial story, but superficial stories are sometimes interesting. Um, I got into K-pop and I'm not joking because a boy I liked in <laughs> my first year of university was a mad keen K-pop fan. And I met him in my Japanese language classes and I got into it because he was into it because I was looking for something to, you know, talk about with this mm. guy I liked. Um, and, you know, that didn't end up eventuating into anything meaningful, but it did introduce a, perhaps what I would call a more important love into my life, which is the love mm. of the passion and the intensity of K-pop culture, both the mm -hmm. fandom side and the media production side. And as I said, it was something that in I encountered very much within the context of my life as a queer individual and that led me to think about well certainly these encounters aren't you know rare that there are many mm. lgbtq fans engaging with k-pop and of course through my research but also through my fandom yes i've encountered the fact that it is a site particularly in australia where where i've done a lot of research with fans here um where many LGBTQ people, people from all across the, the gender and sexuality spectrum come together to celebrate something that's vibrant and exciting. Mm -hmm. And often they do so because K-pop fandom is a supportive place that sits outside of mainstream society and, mm -hmm. and perhaps mainstream society doesn't feel so supportive. Mm -hmm. um, so these, these are the kinds of uh, big questions that motivate my research and they emerge from my own personal experience, but they've also led into other pathways such as, you know, how do LGBTQ fans express their fandom? What sorts of practices do they engage in? Are there any tensions? And what does that fandom experience look like in different sites around the globe, whether that be Australia, Japan, South Korea, the Philippines, Thailand, which are all spaces mm. that I've been doing research. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think especially I realized um, kind of getting some feedback from some of my wonderful listeners about my Pride episode that like, I'm queer and that hasn't been a big part of this podcast, but I have drawn quite a lot of queer fans and or a big part of my listenership, I guess, um, is queer. And I think it's interesting that 
um, that is quite a big part. And like you said, obviously, I'm speaking largely to Australian fandom, I think, but it's quite a big part of the K-pop fandom. Mm. Do you want to talk a little bit about that part of your research, um, especially in terms of why K-pop is interesting or why queer people are drawn to K-pop a bit? Yep, certainly happy to. So um, I'll first of all focus on experiences from Australia, and then if we have mm. time, I might spread off to other contexts where there are differences yeah, that are interesting. But you know, with with a lot of the interviews and and such that I've been doing with K-pop fans in Australia who come from a variety of backgrounds, but and a variety of age groups, so demographically quite diverse. Um, but one kind of thing that I have encountered is that LGBTQ people just pop up, you know, queer people just pop up within the context of the research. I never actually set out specifically to find them, if that makes sense. But they were there and their presence is important because whilst within the context of my research and I've interviewed now, ooh, like formally interviewed about 30, 40 fans um, in Australia, but... I've engaged with more um, through my what we call ethnographic practice. So that means my, you know, engagement in field sites at conferences and sorry, not conferences, concerts and so forth, um, is that they they exist and they want to visibilize their existence and they've come to K-pop often, I kind of gave this away previously, but they often come to K-pop due to a dissatisfaction with representation in other f- areas of their life. Mm -hmm. Um, Whether that be, for instance, um, Asian Australian queer people who are looking for desirable images of Asian men and women that do not exist within our very whitewashed Mm. um, Anglo-Celtic media landscape here. Or conversely, people who are from Anglo-Australian or white Australian backgrounds who have come to K-pop you know, as, as queer individuals who sit outside society and then they find something that seems, I don't want to use the word exotic because that's a term that's quite loaded, mm. but they, they come across something that provides a, a touch of difference. And that touch of difference is resonated with them as queer individuals who feel that they are also have a touch of difference, right? And I think that within the context of Australia, K-pop is queer in the broader sense of queer being anti-normative. So this is me putting on my really academic hat <laughs> and, and not thinking about, you know, queer as an identity category, but queer as a process through which people challenge normative structures in society. Now, typically, we're talking about heteronormativity, you know, the privileging of compulsory heterosexuality within societies that are, you know, dominated by patriarchy, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But queerness can also be other forms of radical kind of challenges to the, the norms of society. And in Australia, which is a, as I said, the media landscape is extremely Anglo, Celtic, extremely white, consumption of K-pop is queer in the sense that it challenges some of that. And the people who engage with it, and I I guess I should be quite frank and say that this is true of, you know, LGBTQ fans and 
kind of cisgendered heterosexual fans alike is that they're engaging in a practice that challenges the norms of Australian society and pushes it in directions that I, I think are very positive. But that particular challenge to normativity is really very central to queer experience. And that's, I think, one of the main reasons why so many queer people get involved in K-pop fandom in Australia is that it provides them a space outside the mainstream to kind of explore and articulate their queerness in a very exciting way in a community that, broadly speaking, does tend to be very open and accepting of um, queer people. And I think that's really kind of fascinating and, and really fantastic. And from my academic standpoint, it's also really interesting because I know, as probably many fans know, that South Korea is not a particularly open society to LGBTQ people or gender diversity. And in fact, the K-pop industry itself at a structural level is actually quite heteronormative. Mm. And whilst we have this fantastic kind of gender performance going on that we mm. can talk about later, at heart, K-pop is a somewhat conservative genre from the Korean perspective. But what happens when it moves outside is that it, it resonates in different spaces and fans read it differently. And I, I, I view that as a queer reading practice. And mm -hmm. I really, really think that that's very transformative and important. That's really interesting to me. I think especially um, as a K-pop fan who's been part of other fan subcultures, um, especially here in Australia, I think the places that I've fallen into as a queer person are all places where that that kind of encouragement to be something different from the mainstream has been really strong. And I don't know, I think it's easy sometimes to see K-pop fandom as is because it's so big, there, there is mainstreams mm. within it. I think that that's actually a really good point to bring up is that, um, you know, it is important not to talk about K-pop fandom as if it's some kind of big monolithic um, site where everyone is the same because as the Black Lives Matter movement revealed, especially in 2019, 2020, when a lot of black K-pop fans spoke mm. up about their, you know, exclusion from K-pop fandom and, mm. and the kind of delegitimization of their voice, that this was something that, that revealed that it wasn't this greatly, hugely accepted space for certain people. And it is, of course, the case that there are pockets of K-pop fandom that are incredibly anti-LGBT. Mm. And this actually emerges in debates over certain fan practices that my research have revealed is very central to K-pop fans, uh, sorry, LGBTQ K-pop fans. Um, practices and that's the practice of shipping mm. um, so this this kind of reimagining of idols in homoerotic relationships and some of the discourse around shipping is used by fans in some contexts um, in very anti-LGBT ways so whilst there are debates over the ethics of shipping that come from a queer radical perspective there are also fans who use anti-LGBT discourse to kind of discourage shipping. And we can, as I said, we can talk about shipping a, a little bit later, perhaps, but this is this is just one site where I, I can think of where acceptance isn't necessarily always going to be there. But at the same time, I think broadly speaking, at least in the Australian context, 
especially amongst fans who are um, usually university age or older, that it is actually a very kind of tolerant space for all kinds of difference. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, that's something I would fairly confidently say about K-pop fandom in Australia, that it's tolerant of difference in, mm. in the broader sense of the term, with notwithstanding the fact that, of course, there's going to be minor kerfuffles mm. between people and, and that fan politics sometimes gets in the way of that as yeah. well. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, I'd love to talk about a bit about shipping and some fan practices. Um, but maybe before we do get into that, do you want to talk a little bit about your your research in some other places, like you said, places like uh, Japan, Thailand, the Philippines, and kind of what you've noticed about some differences across different cultures? I, I think one thing that often comes to mind is that the gendered performances of K-pop idols are read in very different ways by very different people in very different contexts, and that there are kind of in, in Anglophone fandom spaces, so English-speaking fandom spaces like Australia, um, but also like the Philippines. So there's a, an Anglophone fandom space in the Philippines that I engage with, as well as, of course, a Filipino fandom space that I don't engage with as much because I don't speak Filipino, um, where there's a, an investment into the idea of K-pop idols as having a transgressive gendered performance, particularly male K-pop idols, in the sense that there is something that is often called, quote-unquote, soft masculinity, mm-hmm. that, that these male K-pop idols have a form of masculinity that is that is kind of softer and more beautiful and somewhat androgynous. And this is in response to what kinds of masculinities are hegemonic within the kind of reception society. So if you think about what kinds of mas- like stereotypically masculine men emerge in Australia, and I would also say this is true of the Philippines, it's larger, well-built, muscular men who are, you know, strong and powerful and, you know, where emotionality is a weakness and wearing a, wearing makeup makes you like, um, you know, gay or, mm-hmm. and, and that's somehow a bad thing, mm-hmm. right? And, and so within Anglophone fandom context, and this is true of Australia, and I've, I've heard this amongst my fan interlocutors in Australia that, oh, this is where some of the appeal comes from is that these, you know, idols have a kind of, um, softness or a queerness to them mm-hmm. that is appealing. But flip side, what about in a context such as Japan or South Korea, in which the so-called beautiful boy, Bishonen in Japanese, or konminam, um, flower boy in Korean, is the hegemonic norm, particularly amongst heterosexual women. Well, what I found through my interviews with Japanese gay male fans of male K-pop idols is that they actually invest into Korean idols who have so-called beastly mm-hmm. Aesthetics, So they're going for their Wonho's rather than their Jimin's. And the reason that they do that is because, once again, within the context of mainstream consumer culture in those societies, that's the transgressive beauty. Because the Bishonen or the, the Kominam is... Um, the norm. So, and that's also true of Korea. If you ever look at a, a list of idols that gay male Koreans find attractive, the number one spot is never, you know, BTS's Jungkook or Jin or, 
you know, it's it's always one of these more um, in, in Korean they call jimsung dal, which means um, beastly idols. Um, for a long period of time, that was Oktekyon from mm. um, 2 p.m., mm-hmm. uh, Wonho and Shonu from Monster X. Uh, also were highly rated at one point in time. But the fact of the matter is that they're investing into different aesthetics. So often when I'm teaching and in my research, I I kind of use this as an opportunity to say that K-pop gendered performance is much more complicated than we think it is. And that it isn't one is soft, like, you know, or one is hard. It's that there's a, a potential to be both at the same time. And it depends on who's doing the reading. So this is one, one difference that I've encountered, which speaks to very different kind of reading practices amongst same sex attracted individuals who are fans of K-pop and who are investing into fantasies of difference that kind of queer mainstream expectations, but the way they do that is radically different from each other. Mm. And I find that really very interesting because I am a, a scholar of gender as well as sexuality, so I'm really keen to kind of tease apart the gendered politics of K-pop as well as the reception of K-pop amongst LGBTQ consumers. That's super interesting to me. I guess there are two things that that made me think about, and one is that... As a non-binary person, for me, K-pop, like, that kind of alternate masculinity to what I was shown growing up especially was really appealing. Um, the other thing that I thought about was it then is interesting to me tracking the uh, marketing of K-pop in terms of in the 2000s particularly being quite internal and then to Japan and particularly East and Southeast Asia, um, that, like the boy groups were quite different and mm. the the style of masculinity presented them was much more like the the kind of beast type idols um, but now as it's marketed more to a western audience that like we i think there does tend to be more of a focus on this i guess softer masculinity and mm. i think it's interesting that that's tracking with what you're saying about um different cultures being interested in the that kind of alternate or like different masculinity to the what is primary in those cultures. Mm-hmm. So I think one one thing that I often say I, I when I'm introducing this idea, for example, to my students and and some people, you know, um, find it quite confronting because they've invested so much energy into the idea that you know K-pop idols are androgynous that to to have a, a kind of white cisgendered male say, well, you know, maybe we should critique that. Um, Confronting, But what I often explain it as is that in no way does this politics of reception in Japan delegitimize your own, for instance, experiences as a non-binary person in Australia. Because the fact of the matter is that reception is always about the location and the cultural space in which it occurs. Mm -hmm. So, of course, reception is going to be different. And you're quite right that we're seeing shifts in idol kind of management and, and the aesthetics of K-pop precisely because of two things. One, because the, the shift towards, you know, the, the West as, as the primary market or the primary prestige market. I think it's important to note that because in terms of sales, Japan and Southeast mm. Asia are still mm. more important than you know, the West, Europe and North America. 
Um, except for BTS, but BTS sits in its own little space. But sure. speaking of BTS, the yeah, the massive success of BTS is rippling throughout K-pop idol production because up-and-coming groups, except perhaps at the big three, where they already have a really well-established aesthetic ideal, but basically up-and-coming groups are seeing, oh, BTS is successful, so we need to produce idols that look like BTS, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and that's the same thing as what happened in the, the beastly idol boom of the two, the mid two thousands, um, to late two thousands was that 2 PM was successful. Therefore, everyone else must also create beastly idols. Um, and they were responding and, and 2 PM was successful because they were explicitly responding to rain B, mm. right? Mm-hmm. So there was this kind of movement around production and, as I said, what really interests me is just how LGBTQ fans who have a really interesting relationship to gender and gender norms engage with these cycles of production. Now, I personally believe that we will probably be seeing a shift towards beastly idols again, um, because this is a cyclical thing. Um, and partly, I think that in order to respond to some of the hegemonic norms of Western production. Um, I actually, as, as a long-term army, I've been following them pre-debut, oh, which is incredible. like a feather in my cap. <laughs> um, I have seen radical transformations in mm. the way they present themselves. For sure. Um, and they are changing their representational politics and they're responding to what's going on particularly in the West, um, which has actually led to some issues in the South Korean fandom because mm. they're kind of like, why are you neglecting us? Mm. Um, which is always interesting. But yeah. this is not a, a podcast about <laughs> BTS and its reception, so I, I should probably stop there. Um, but it is it is really kind of key because, like, actually, some of the to kind of bring us back on point, some of the the fieldwork that has led to some of these arguments, I actually attended in Sydney in early twenty. 20? Yes, early 2020, before COVID happened. I think that's right. Um, I attended a exhibition of a famous Korean fan site's photos of Jimin and Jungkook. And the amount of LGBTQ fans that I met there was huge. Like mm. both from, from, you know, LGBTQ, all of them, everyone mm. was there. And what really interested me was this was not a shipping event at all. Okay. In fact, very carefully managed to not mm. be. But so many people were there because of that. And not necessarily in an erotic sense, but just because they wanted to celebrate the relationship between those two members. And that that was always something I found really interesting is the prominence of shipping or prominence of debates over shipping. Depends yeah. on which camp you you, <laughs> you land in. Do you want to talk about that a bit? Because something that you kind of have talked about in your research and various work is the idea of shipping and this type of queer fantasy as actually a place of agency for K-pop fans. Mm. And I think that's really interesting in terms of explorations of gender and sexuality and that that's happening inside this fandom space. Yep, happily. Um, so I am, and I'll put this on, on record straight away. I'm a, I'm pro shipping. I don't mm-hmm. think shipping is a problem. 
Mm-hmm. At, at a fundamental level, though I believe that there are problems that sit within shipping practice itself mm-hmm. that relate to the ethics of the practice. But fundamentally, I don't see an issue with shipping. Um, so if you're someone who finds shipping problematic, you know, I'm not going to say stop listening, but, you know, listen to me with, with some, um, you, you know, grain of salt because yeah. I might kind of show you a new interpretation. So um, I do believe that shipping is a site of agency um, for LGBTQ fans because primarily I've met too many LGBTQ fans in Australia, Japan, Thailand, the Philippines and in South Korea itself who have told me that they practice shipping specifically as a site to make sense of a few things. One, themselves as queer people, mm-hmm. particularly same-sex attracted men um, who are using shipping as a site to explore, you know, what it means to love other men. That's something that's very common. Um, I encountered that a lot in the Philippines, for instance, which is a society that does not have a lot of positive representation of kind of queer intimacy and queer romance. Second, it is a site in which queer individuals can engage with their sexual attraction to idols, whether that be gay men engaging in extremely pornographic fan fiction about K-pop idols as a site to kind of explore their own attraction to those K-pop idols. I think one of the things, there's a quote from a fan that I interviewed who I've given the the pseudonym Marcus, um, and this is a quote that's in a forthcoming chapter I've written on shipping. And he said, like, for me, it's it's about creating this fantasy where I can imagine that they are gay men like me mm-hmm. and that I can engage with a fantasy of potentially, you know, that they could be with me. And he recognizes the fantasy, you know, underlying mm-hmm. that word fantasy. But it's a way for him to kind of make sense of his sexual attraction to K-pop idols. And I think that there is a tendency in both the scholarship and in debate amongst fans to kind of downplay the the fact that sexuality plays a role in K-pop fandom and that sexual attraction is part of K-pop fandom. Mm. And I'm not I'm not very sympathetic to people who jump up and down and get upset about quote unquote sexualizing the idols because they are sexual beings. Mm. Now if they're underage, if they're minors, yes, don't sexualize the idols. But that's not a politics of, you know, that it's inherently wrong to sexualize an idol. That's a politics of it's inherently wrong to sexualize mm. a minor. And mm-hmm. that's not debatable, right? But the K-pop idol is put out there to be consumed because they're talented, of course, but there is also supposed to be an attraction, an attraction to the talent and an attraction to the sexuality. And for K-pop fans whose sexual attraction, quote unquote, deviates from social norms, you know, it's a site. Shipping allows them to make sense of that and it provides them an opportunity to do that. Now, yes, the vast majority of shipping fan fictions and, and, and so forth is produced by heterosexual women who are also engaging with kind of queer representation to explore their sexualities, um, which makes it queer in that radical sense Mm. of kind of pushing back against things. But this is a space where people make sense of their attraction. And I I think that we should be a little bit more kind of understanding and empathetic to the fact that some people need that um, and and that, that shipping is a space where you can 
do that. Then the other thing is that shipping brings people together and it allows for fans to come together as a community to celebrate homoeroticism and to celebrate queer representation and to create queer representation. Mm -hmm. So another bisexual fan from um, Sydney, so she was a bisexual woman who lived in Sydney and engaged in shipping of both male idols, um, BTS in particular, and female idols, actually got into K-pop because of her sexual attraction to members of 21. Mm -hmm. And she said to me that 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 shipping, you know, was important because K-pop is so heteronormative at the structural level that fans need to inject queer representation into it Mm -hmm. and that shipping thus allows queer fans to put some queer content into a media industry that is not necessarily outwardly queer friendly or Mm. outright kind of discriminatory if we look at the career of the um, indie idol Holland, Mm. for instance, you Mm. know, who was (laughs) kind of dumped by major labels when he came out, right, Um, which is atrocious. Mm. Um, So I think that that's really interesting. Likewise, one last quote from another informant, a bisexual woman from the Philippines who was involved in LGBT advocacy and activism within that context and was also an educator Um, working at a very prestigious institution in the Philippines. Um, She viewed shipping as political, like that it was about um, kind of pushing back against the idea that romance and and the fan-idol relationship has to be framed through heteronormative structures Mm -hmm. and that queerness in shipping is is a space where you can actually push back against that and and she said to me something that has always stuck with me she's like yes i can understand people who are concerned around sexualization of idols um or particularly minors or people who take shipping too far and don't realize that it's a fantasy because the vast majority of shippers understand it's a fantasy um and it's when it goes too far you know shippers themselves will critique those people And she's like, and I understand questions about queer baiting, and I think that those are relevant discussions. But what she said is really problematic is having fans police other fans' desires and say, no, shipping is wrong, and what you're doing is a perverted form of engagement. Because she's like, that is heteronormative backlash against queer practice. Mm -hmm. And that's always really stuck with me because it really resonates with what I think of of shipping as well as K-pop fandom more broadly for LGBTQ fans is that it is a space of agency and any kind of agency kind of management or, or, or anything that polices queer fans kind of exploration of themselves is for me dangerous mm. and I, I think that that's that's what really when i do my work on shipping and think about shipping is what really motivates me and then the other thing queer baiting is an important debate right um and and there are certainly exploitative factors involved in the ways that k-pop production companies kind of manage skinship and manage these sorts of things in order to make money. But let's just remember that the whole K-pop industry is about manipulating senses of intimacy in order to make money. And in that regard, if you're going to kind of critique shipping, you need to critique the whole structure. Mm. Um, And most fans don't do that. They say shipping bad, but other forms of fan manipulation apparently okay. And that's somewhat hypocritical, I think. But what I think 
debates around queer baiting neglect to take into consideration is that queer baiting is a very western centric understanding mm. of media representation mm-hmm. because it emerges in debates predominantly aimed at north american media content from people living in societies in which same sex people have representation and also have legal protections mm-hmm. so south korea has no anti discrimination mm. law for on the basis of sexual or gendered identity and except for kind of guarantees around equal opportunity in employment that's it and it is a society in which there is so little queer representation that yeah maybe it's queer baiting but at least it gets it on the screen or it, there's a space it provides a space of representation and that's something that the the queer baiting debate neglects i think and it's something that you know, I think needs to be addressed. And and when I talk to queer LGBTQ fans in spaces like Japan, not so much because Japan has good representation in so, at some level. Um, but in, in Korea, in the Philippines and in Thailand, which is another site that I do work, you know, they, they'll say to me that, oh, well, I'm just glad to have some kind of representation. Um, I'm glad that I can see a positive depiction of male-male romance, even if it is just, you know, idols touching each other or, or some some kind of fangirl writing a fanfiction, because that's important within my context. And I think that if it's not becoming clear already, one of the things that I'm really keen on, and this is because I'm an anthropologist and this is what we do, mm-hmm. is that we think about context and, and the, the environment and the cultural spaces in which practices occur, because you can't analyze or make sense of them as if they're divorced from context. And everything that I've been saying for the past few minutes is me drawing upon what I have been told by the people who are directly concerned. So it isn't just me making my opinion because I like shipping and I want to justify it. It is me kind of pushing forward the voices of disadvantaged LGBTQ consumers around the region, the Asia-Pacific region, who have told me specifically that this is a site that they feel is important. Now, of course, there are also LGBTQ fans who don't like shipping and, and view it through the lens of queer baiting and are concerned about it. And I recognize and understand those concerns because those concerns come from the very same feeling of exclusion and kind of lack of agency that the other fans are motivated to engage in shipping. So basically there's a shared feeling of exclusion that has led to very different outcomes. And which one is the most correct outcome? You know, uh, I'm not here to maybe make that judgment. But what I would say is that, you know, if you don't like shipping, fine. But if someone does, that's fine too. Mm. And you shouldn't be policing each other's actions. Mm. I think that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and especially for LGBTQ people, because, you know, society already polices us enough. Mm. Yeah. We don't need to start policing ourselves. Yeah. It's... Yeah, this is something I was really excited to talk to you about because something that I try to be very aware of as a white fan in in this very kind of Anglo-Celtic space in Australia, being aware of 
general kind of Korean culture and fan culture in Korea is really important to me in consuming K-pop because I think the con- like that's the context of where this media is coming from. Um, and that's where this fandom came from in the first place. And, and I get quite frustrated when I see these very kind of US-centric, Eurocentric discussions about things like shipping and yeah. and kind of fan practices and, and consumption Hasht- like that. Because like hashtag BTS is not K-pop, <laughs> which is ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> but that, I think that like realizing that even even the fan service like what is happening on stage and in music videos and the media we're consuming as k-pop fans like realizing that that's coming out of a culture different to ours and that needs to be part of the mm. discussion has been really important mm. for me i mean and and you know to to give i'm all about there's a thing in 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 queer theory called reparative reading. And this is what I'm engaging in right now. Reparative reading is a tactic in which we don't focus on the structures of, like the the actual structures that disadvantage queer people. What we do is that we focus on how queer people engage with the world in ways that provide support and agency. Um, So it's, it's, it's still a critical reading, but not critical in the sense of negative. It's critical in the sense of teasing apart broader structures of support. So if I was to apply a reparative reading to fans who maybe aren't aware of the Korean context and, you know, make their judgments based in what they know, then that speaks to the fact that they're creating sense of the world from where they are, and that's okay. And I guess maybe what my my point is here is, whilst of course, as an as an educator and an advocate, I'm all about kind of conveying the nuances of the Korean context as well as other contexts, because I, I think that it's important not to over centralize the Korean context um, and and recognize in a, a transnational phenomenon like K-pop fandom that. There are numerous centers and these centers compete with each other and that there is no one default correct way. But what I'm, what I'm trying to get at here is that I, I think we all need to be engaging in this kind of reparative practice because we're all too quick to do the opposite, which is that critical, harsh, judgy kind of work. And, and that doesn't necessarily help us move towards if I want to use a highfalutin phrase, queer <laughs> emancipation. Mm. Um, so <laughs> when I'm doing my work, when I'm writing, these are the, the things that sit in the front of my mind. And they sit in the front of my mind because as a cisgendered white man who does work on K-pop queer fandoms, particularly in East and Southeast Asia, like I really need to be very careful about my own positioning Because, yes, whilst I am sharing in the kind of queer sexuality of many of my informants, though, you know, when I'm interviewing bisexual women or lesbian women or non-binary people, then, of course, I don't. But I do when I'm interviewing gay male fans. And and I should flag that I do predominantly focus on gay male consumers Mm -hmm. in my work, though not exclusively. And that's just because it's easier for me to build rapport because of that shared experience. But what I'm motivated by is to really make sure that whilst I'm a theoretician, so my my job as an academic is to make sense of what I 
observe like the information and the data and the opinions and the arguments themselves derive from those people that I meet in the field and as a scholar what I'm actually really curious about doing is using you know k-pop fandom as a case study for instance or I do work in Japan and I do work in in Thailand on their kind of media landscapes as well and what I'm doing is saying okay queer theoretical debates which are primarily focused on north american contexts what can east and southeast asia tell us about you know representation of queerness in media for instance that will help nuance our understanding and move beyond a eurocentric white paradigm um and so so what i'm really trying to do is is sit there and say okay asia can teach us a lot about these media debates and the experiences of lgbtq fans living across the asia pacific which i include australia in very strategically and politically um you know it's a political choice on my behalf mm. to say that asia that australia is part of asia and i do that kind of to be a bit provocative um but <laughs> mm. what i'm doing is i'm really challenging common sense notions of the world and even if my challenge is directed at you know white liberal lgbtq academics i i my commitment to the radical transformative and deconstructive politics of queer theory requires me to do this because i i i have a, a you know some books coming out two books in particular coming out one this year and one next year that have nothing to do with k-pop but do respond to my work on queer media in Japan and Thailand and i wrote them knowing that the audience would be kind of liberal highly educated wealthy kind of queer professors teaching in north american universities and i'm like okay so what can i do to make that particular reader recognize and understand that their world their default way of understanding kind of queer media and representation and reception among sexual minority communities is not necessarily the default one and i'm now commencing that work with my kind of investigation of k-pop fans as well and i i'm really hoping to create a more expansive and inclusive definition of what it means to be a queer media consumer just mm. in general no matter what that media happens to be mm. which is maybe a little bit ambitious but you know shoot no, for the stars as they say absolutely yeah and i think a lot of fans especially queer fans do have these really big discussions about things like what constitutes queer baiting and is it okay mm. or is yeah things about like the ethics of shipping and and these quite big discussions and I think a lot of us feel like in other parts of our lives that it's not um, taken seriously and fandom is the only place where it is mm. and so I don't know maybe it is a big goal with your research but I think it's something that means a lot that it it goes towards well yeah you take it seriously mm. obviously and it contributes to an academic space um, where it's treated more seriously as well. Yeah, but I mean, this is where I also, you know, I'm a fan, right? So yeah. like everything you're saying <laughs> resonates with me as a fan too, right? <laughs> 
But one of the reasons that I do a lot of work with fans is, and and I, I remember writing this down recently, and I've applied for a big grant from the Australian government to try and do this work in Australia. And, and I, I said to them, you know, in, in the grant that like fans are incredibly sophisticated consumers of media mm-hmm. that fans understand and engage with media in very reflexive ways. They have a lot of agency. They have higher media literacy than quite you know, other comparable groups. Now, yes, some kind of devolve a little bit into that delusional space because they're a little bit too into it. Um, And yes, the politics of fandom can sometimes misdirect people away from the truly, you know, transformative potentials of fandom. Um, you know, I'm thinking about fan wars and, and mm, kind of mm-hmm. anti-shippers who, you know, crusade on, you know, how mm. dare you kind of do this icky stuff, you're weird, that's wrong. Um, they're misdirecting some of those kind of radical potentials of, of fandom and, and the skills that fandom provides people into directions that are harmful to them and to others. Whereas other fans, and I I would say the vast majority of fans, Mm. um, especially the LGBTQ fans that I've engaged with, will channel all of this knowledge and energy into the kinds of sophisticated debates that you're, you're talking about. And for me, that's really, really important because as I, I hope that I've kind of been kind of explaining in in our discussion today is that for me what k-pop fandom provides lgbtq uh, fans and consumers is a space to explore debate and understand the world in Mm. just broad spaces what um we academically in fancy academic language (laughs) refer to as a space of enunciation, which means a space in which you can bring into the world new knowledge through collecting and piecing together all of these kind of facts and tidbits that you have, but you combine them not just with facts, but with your feelings and your uh, what we call effective responses to media. And, and that creates this really complicated patchwork of very, very interesting knowledge that people can then use to change the world. And I Mm. think that that is fantastic. And this is why I am so invested into the work that I do, because I truly believe in the radical transformational potential of fandom for K-pop in particular to do a lot of good in society and in particular for LGBTQ consumers, because in my life, it's done wonders. Mm. Yes, maybe I didn't get the boy who <laughs> I started listening to fly to the sky back in the day just to impress him. Amazing. But I have met people through mm. this long journey as a scholar, but as a fan, where I have seen those, you know, positives. And I've, you know, I've seen people get together um, because, you know, they, they were queer people who were disadvantaged. I actually, thinking about um, the bisexual fan of Two Anyone, who I quoted earlier, um, they ended up getting together with another woman, and they were both from rural areas, and oh, they wow. had moved to the city, and they met each other mm-hmm. through K-pop fandom, and they got together, mm-hmm. and are still together, right? Mm-hmm. So that that just kind of speaks to what a what kind of awesome connective power K-pop 
fandom can have in Australia for LGBTQ consumers. And I, I as I said, like I, maybe I'm gushing a bit, but I really do think <laughs> no. it's great. Yeah. I don't know. I'm never going to stop someone talking positively about fandom because I, I obviously really do believe mm. in that. And mm. that's, yeah, no small part of this show is investing in, um, investing in fandom. And I, I, yeah, I kind of have talked about this before and like, obviously maybe there's a dream one day that I'll interview artists on, on this show or as a freelancer, but really it's about encouraging fandom and fandom discussion and, and all of that and having a really positive space for it. Um, and I absolutely want, want queer fans to be a part of that because yeah, like, I don't know, it's tricky sometimes to kind of be like, uh, like what kind of percentage of K-pop fandoms is queer fans? Um, because I don't know if I just mm-hmm. fall into spaces where they're very common. Um, but I think regardless, they're a big part of it. Yeah, I do. And and I think rather than trying to engage in some kind of quantitative exercise to work out the proportion of the fandom, just recognising that they're there and that, well, not there, where, that we are there and that we are loud mm. and that mm. we are significant. And, like, that's enough. Who cares if we only represent 1% of the fandom? <laughs> but also, conversely, who cares if we represent... A significant minority, say 25% of the fandom, that's not important to me. What is important to me is the fact that we're present and that that means that there there should be debates and, and thinking about this. And one of my big disappointments when I first began engaging with K-pop professionally in my academic life rather than, you know, in my reading fix on <laughs> AO3 life to de- de-stress after work um, was that... There wasn't a lot of writing on queer K-pop fandom, like, or the queer potentials of K-pop. Like, I was surprisingly shocked, especially because I come from a background in Japanese studies, first and foremost, where there is Mm -hmm. so much Mm. writing on queerness within Japanese popular culture and its global fandom, which I contribute to, of course, but like, it's, it's, there's a wealth of it. And yet, for some reason, South Korea didn't. And and I often, I, I've reviewed, you know, books on K-pop fandom um, for academic journals. Uh, and I, I recently reviewed a fantastic collection called Queer Korea, which was edited by a very good friend and colleague of mine. But, you know, as much as I love the book and I did, I, I did have to make the point that, you know, but you don't have a chapter on K-pop in here. And that's a bit bizarre, when you consider mm, how yeah. you know, central queerness and K-pop are in contemporary Korea, because they are entangled. Mm. So I, I think that whilst we're seeing work emerge, and, you know, I'm part of that process, it's still a little bit undeveloped. And, you know, I've come, I've been invited to speak about these topics, for instance, at the World Congress of Korean Studies, which is, which is organized by the Academy of Korean Studies, which is um, a, a an organization that is funded by the South Korean government to promote the academic study of South Korea. So I was invited as part of the Oceania dele- delegation to talk about my work on queer K-pop. And, you know, I'm talking about things that to me feel very, you know, common. They're part of my everyday life. Um, some of what I, the debates that you and I have been having today are kind of common debates. But here I am standing in front of a hall of, you know, various scholars working on Korea from around the globe. And they're like, wow, 
I've never, I didn't know this was happening. Oh, wow. Like, this is a thing. And like, to me, it seems so obvious. And I guess this is responding back to what you were saying around there needs to be more opportunities for this to be aired because, you know, here I am in this fancy building in, you know, just outside Seoul with very, very important scholars. And like, they're like, well, this is the first time I've ever even considered this. And I'm kind of like, huh? Mm. And, and that was like such a, a moment where I'm kind of, it drives me to do this work and do do more of it because I'm kind of like, and, and not just to publish it in, in, you know, academic journal articles, but to, you know, talk to people like you and, and get that, that message out there um, and, and engage in other, other ways and other public fora. Mm. Yeah. And I do like, just like looking into your research, like I do really appreciate how accessible a lot of that is. That it's not always with other people who have talked about these issues or similar issues. And I'm, yeah, really grateful to you for coming on and kind of presenting some of this because I, the stuff we've talked about, I've learnt a lot. And yeah, like the fact that you're willing to bring this in a, in an accessible way to fans is really important. I, I think that academics have a responsibility to speak to everyone. Too many academics spend their time just kind of debating amongst themselves. Mm. Um, but as a fan myself, you know, participating in these dialogues is important to me mm. um, because I don't just do this work for my own intellectual gratification. I do it because I think that it's important politically. Mm. As I, I hope that, as I said, I hope I've made that clear that, that mm. I think that this has implications for queer emancipation, no matter how mm-hmm. high concept that, that sounds. Like, that, that's something I truly believe in. And, and that means that the dialogue needs to be out there. Yeah, absolutely. I Yeah, I'm kind of very slowly planning an episode on queer baiting and some of the discussion that happens around that because a lot of my listeners are either in Australia or in the US. Mm. And, it like, it has been... A bit tricky um, as I kind of have gotten into this podcast understanding like or or deciding how much queerness is going to um, play a part in my discussions Mm. and the topics I decide to cover and things like that. But I think it's become very obvious to me that that needs to be a big part of it because it's it's Mm -hmm. so it's so important to me personally, but it's also so central in Mm -hmm. K-pop and in K-pop fandom practices as well. I agree. And and like... You know, queer, queer potential is everywhere. Everything mm. has queer potential. Mm-hmm. Um, and hence, it, it doesn't, you know, it, it's just a, a slight nudge and out it flows like a, a beautiful <laughs> rainbow river, right? Like, so, mm. like, I, I, I think that that's really important work. And I I really kind of look forward to, to hearing that, that podcast that you're working on for queer baiting, because that would be great. I've just actually finished writing a whole chapter about queer baiting yes. in Thai media. Um, yes, in the least stalky been... way. I've seen it on your Twitter, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah so that, that's been my, uh, my, my life re- lately, um, mm. though I'm moving on to a different writing project now. Um, mm. But it is something that I think about, and I think it's, I, I, I do want to kind of flag, I, I think it's an important debate. I'm not dismissing it. I just mm, think that for sure. it needs to be a debate that's had with more nuance. And I hope that for some, you know, some people who um, are listening in today, maybe you've heard an alternative perspective on these things that might help you 
you know think about think about them in a different way and and mm. and perhaps be a little bit less maybe be a little bit more flexible in in your thinking about what is an important debate but understand that people face different pressures in different mm. contexts and i guess my perspective is not necessarily about changing people's minds but just like this is where other people are coming from and that's something mm. i think we could all do yeah. a little do with a little more um especially in k-pop of that just like just a bit more understanding yes i i definitely agree that we all need <laughs> to be a little bit more understanding of differing opinions of course with the caveat that we don't support sassings <laughs> oh, of course <laughs> there are limits <laughs> yes there, yeah. there's limits there are always limits it's the, the the ultimate the ultimate kind of um stricture is do no harm right yes so absolutely as as there's no harm absolutely go for it yeah and i think if i guess to people listening if you're someone who hasn't necessarily thought th- about this a lot or someone who has not considered other perspectives um even for a while then that viewing other people's perspectives also through the category of of do no harm i think mm, is yeah, useful 100% <laughs> I think that's everything that I wanted to talk about for now, um, unless there was anything mm-hmm. particularly interesting that we haven't covered that you wanted to bring up. No, I, I mean, I think that I've covered all of my my, my kind of talking points um, that I would usually bring to these sorts of discussions. <laughs> Amazing. Yes, thank you so much for coming on. Is Do you want to promote your Twitter where people can find you, things like that? Yep, will do. So um, you can find my Twitter handle at T Bodinet, um, B-A-U-D-I-N-E-T-T-E. Um, I also have a website where I post um, recorded lectures and links to my articles. Um, you can find that at thomasbodinet.wordpress.com. I am actually fairly chill with people interacting with me as long as you do so respectfully. So feel free to at me if you'd like to discuss anything or to DM me if you want to begin a discussion. Mm, yes. And if you're interested in this work, then definitely um, check out his blog. It's super, super interesting and super accessible, um, which I appreciate very much. <laughs> I want to say filled with lots of pictures of pretty boys. If that's oh, your absolutely. Thing, certainly mine. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I have jokes uh, with some of my friends about K-pop boyfriends. And sometimes I think, oh, maybe I shouldn't joke about how these these people act like K-pop boyfriends. And then I went to your blog and I was like, oh, there they are together on the cover of her article about shipping. So, okay, maybe I'm more justified <laughs> than I thought. <laughs> I mean, as I said, my, my professional academic... Um you know, Twitter feed. Also, I think I recently posted, like retweeted something where it's like, oh, look, Jenno and Jamin are wearing the same shirt. Doesn't it great when boyfriends dress like a couple? <laughs> like, so, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I'll do it. But I do it because I think it's funny and it's fun mm. and it's cute. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. Absolutely. Amazing. Okay. Well, yes, thank you so much again for coming on. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much again to Dr. Bodinet for coming on. If this is something you're interested in, I really can't recommend enough checking out his work and social media and links to all of that will be in the show notes. And thanks to you for joining me this week. 
I'd really love to have some discussions about this episode, so do head over to Manse Podcast on Instagram and Twitter to tell me what you thought and if you want me to do more episodes like this. If you do follow the show, especially on the socials, you probably know that things have been a bit hectic for me, life has been weird, and my mental health has been suffering a bit, which I know has impacted the show. But I am working on it, and hopefully going forward I'll have more time and energy to commit to this. I do really care about it, and I want to give you the best content that I can. As always, my sources are in the show notes, which is also where you can find the card which has all the podcast-related links. This show is produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I pay my respects to their elders, past and present. This land was stolen and sovereignty over it was never ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm Zia J, and I'll catch you next week for the next episode of Munsey, a K-pop podcast. Mm-hmm.